A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, the restoration of the spirit of God to his rightful place in the church in the life of the believer is by all means the most important thing that could possibly take place. If you could increase the attendance of your church until there is no more room, if you could provide everything they have in churches that men want and love and value, and yet you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you might as well have nothing at all. Not by might, nor by power, excuse me, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by the eloquence of man, not by good music, not by good preaching, but it is by the spirit that God works his mighty works, end quote. And It is in light of that that we have spent the last three weeks, and this is the final week, where we ended our study in Acts, and we said we need to focus on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, absolutely essential to the the life of faith, to the Christian life. I know in the very beginning I said to you all, I'm a freshman at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and that's when someone sat down and explained to me, you know, the Holy Spirit lives in you, Lloyd. You can't live the Christian life. Only Jesus can, and he sent his spirit to live in us, and the spirit, Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, it's it's appropriate that we say Christ lives in us, right? Because the spirit and, and, and Christ are one in essence, though they're distinct in role, and so it is the spirit within us that reproduces the very life of Christ through us. Now, I asked you for some questions. I didn't get a ton, but boy, the ones I got were doozies. And um, I'm not going to be able to cover them all, but I want you to know that um, what I don't cover today, I, I plan on uh, this coming week being able to finish. I, I've, I've posted my notes online, but I've got some things to add because some of the questions you asked I didn't get to, but I'm going to get to and we'll put them online for you. This is not going to be an exposition. This is, we're, we're taking a the time out, in a sense, we're going, let's address some of the questions that have been raised as we wrap up this series. And so with that, we are going to jump in, the deep end, with both feet. Uh, first question, <clears throat> it's a combined question, but first question, why do some believe that baptism in or by or of the Holy Spirit is something that happens after conversion? And that it, is, it, that it is evidenced by speaking in tongues. Well, wow, there's a big question. Let me start with what we believe. Okay, we're gonna, I just want to start there. And I've already said this and taught this, so I'll say it quickly. Uh, we believe that, the, that baptism in, of, by the Holy Spirit occurs the moment that a person places their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, we, we believe that the baptism of the Spirit is that work of the Spirit by which he, he puts us in union with Jesus, so we're in union with Christ, and he places us in the body of Christ that the New Testament letters tell us is the church, that, that the church, all who believe in Christ, belong to a body, and Jesus is the head, and the baptism of the Spirit places us in that body. We base that on 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Paul writes, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. We base it on Romans 8, 9. Paul says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. See, you understand when you put your faith in Christ, oh, you have the spirit of Christ. He indwells us. But in that moment as well, he, he baptizes us into the body of Christ. He identifies us as being a part of the body of Christ. And that happens at belief. Now, uh, this isn't the only reason, but let me say, because some do believe that the, the baptism of the Spirit is something that happens after. It's like you come to faith in Christ, you live in your Christian life, and then somewhere along the lines, you're, you're baptized by the Spirit, and you have, that's when you experience power, and that's when you may, you'll speak in tongues, etc. Why do some people believe that? Well, in the book of Acts, which we just studied, uh, there are three occurrences where it, it Two, in fact, where, where the baptism of the Spirit actually does occur after people believe. And the third one, I'm going to argue, is that they weren't even Christians. So, so there's evidence in the book of Acts that it's true. So why don't we believe it? Well, let me start with a biblical, biblical hermeneutics, which is simply to say biblical rules of interpretation. And this is so important. It's kind of like a classroom study right now, quite frankly. Let me say to you, there's two principles of interpretation you have to bear in mind when you interpret the book of Acts or any other book, okay? First is this. We've got to understand what kind of literature we're looking at. The book of Acts is a historical narrative. It's a historical narrative. It is describing Things that happened, really happened. But it is not prescribing this is the way it always will be and this is the way you always do it. Does that make sense? You see, a historical narrative is just telling a story of what really happened, but it's not prescribing that these things be so. You know, the, the, the disciples, think about the book of Acts. You know how they replaced uh, Judas? You remember this at the beginning? What did they do to replace Judas? They threw dice. Do you, do you throw dice today to determine God's will? No, we do not. You know, in the book of Acts, uh, the, there was a couple who sold some land and they gave the proceeds. And, and when they gave the proceeds, they lied to Peter. What happened to them? They dropped dead. So we're going we're gonna to review what you gave today. You know, I mean, you know, if, what if we did that? What if you said, you give your 10%? What, what's it? We don't do that. Is everybody with me? We don't interpret giving in light of what happened here. Is everybody with me on that? It, it, this is a, a, a crude sort of analogy, but many of you have started and run your own business or, or, or ministry or whatever it may be. And, and, and you know this, when you begin, you know, you're just, you're just doing what you can to get the product out or produce the service, whatever it may be. And, and two years in, something happens or six months in, something happens and you go, oh my gosh, we didn't anticipate this. What do we do? And your partner says, well, look at the policy manual. And you go, we don't have a policy manual. We, we, you know, and so you go, well, let's write one. Okay, let's write this up. And then eight months later, something else happens, says, get the policy manual. Well, that's not in the, add this to the policy manual. You see, as you're going along, you're, you're learning as you go. Um, Understand that the New Testament church is birthed in the book of Acts. And I'm telling you, they're toddlers, you know, by chapter 6. They're barely walking at chapter 7, you know. So they're growing. They're, it's, not, it's not unspiritual to say they are learning as they go. And we get this wonderful story of how the New Testament church organized itself and solved problems and and so you got to keep that in mind. It is historical narrative. 
And secondly, as I just described, to make this point, it is transitional. So it's a historical narrative. It describes, doesn't prescribe. It's transitional. What do I mean transitional? Aren't all, all the books in the Bible transitional? Well, no. The book of Romans isn't transitional. The book of Romans is a doctrinal book whereby Paul writes and says, look, this is justification by faith. It's by faith in Christ alone. He writes to the Galatians and says, you guys, you guys have some issues going on. Some of you have, have let go of the gospel of grace. Let me explain to you the gospel of grace. Those aren't transitional books. But Acts, as I've just described it from its beginning to its end, is transitional as the church is getting its footing. Is everybody with me on that? And so when you take those two, just those two principles of interpretation, we, we, we go, oh, well, then when we interpret Acts, we need to be careful is this being prescribed? And isn't this part of just the transition of the birth of the church? And when we're careful about that, I'm going to tell you, we'll be very careful about how we look at the doctrine of the baptism of the Spirit. And even, and I'm going to say this, um, speaking in tongues. This in no way diminishes the book of Acts. I hope no one heard me say, you know, the book of Acts is it's not really inspired. No, this is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit for our good and our helpfulness. Okay, Lloyd, you've explained that. Now, but what about the three occurrences? Because there are three points in the book of Acts where the baptism comes later. Let's take the first one, the big one. Acts 2.4, the day of Pentecost. This is when the Spirit fell on them. They spoke in tongues, spoke in languages, etc. cetera. Let's, let's, let's take that and understand the unique nature of it. Now, I've already said this is the birth of the church. So this is the birth of the church. So is there ever gonna be another birth of the church? See, I'm asking you. No, you see, so it's a, it's a one-time event. But I want you to think about what happened here. We know for a fact that Jesus, a few days before, if this is Pentecost, a few days before Pentecost, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He tells them that he's gonna do this. And he says, now, I don't want you to go out and fulfill the Great Commission. Don't go out and make disciples of all nations. Don't, don't start, don't start yet. You need to wait until I baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, there were three great festivals in the Old Testament. This is not a digression. Three great festivals in the Old Testament. Um, Passover, uh, the Feast of Weeks, and then uh, the Festival of Booths. These are the, the main ones. These are the ones that all the males in Israel had to go to Jerusalem on, to, to celebrate, okay? Passover is that feast where they celebrate their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. Everybody with me? And they, they, they kill a lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the death angel passes over homes that have the blood. Does this sound like, oh, this sounds like what? Sounds like, well, guess what? Jesus was crucified during what festival? Passover, see, the, so, so, so the, he was crucified. And it's like, ding, 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 ding. Yes, because it all points to Jesus. That lamb was pointing to the lamb of God, Jesus, the final. Not the one that covered sin, but the one who removed sin by his life, death, and resurrection. Well, Jesus said, I want you guys to wait till the Holy Spirit comes. And we don't know how long it was, but on the, on, from Passover to Pentecost, we know this for a fact, it's 50 days, which is why it's called Pentecost. 50. It's seven weeks and one day. Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is a festival that they had been celebrating for generations. 
You know, it's not, it's not, they didn't go, oh, this is the day of the birth of the church. No, they celebrated Pentecost because Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. For generations, they celebrated it 50 days after Passover. And the day of Pentecost, the celebration was the gathering of the first fruits. So, so God said, you're gonna celebrate the first fruits you bring in that I provide for you. Now think about this. So Jesus tells them to wait. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit baptizes them, indwells, fills them. The Holy Spirit, who is the power that enables us to go out and harvest souls, who enables us to go and and bring in all of God's people from the four corners of the globe. He falls on them on that day to remind them that the Spirit is a spirit of harvest, of mission. Do you see that? And I I wish it reminded us more of that so that we understand that if you and I are not on mission, if we're not living our life to bring in the harvest, we are not in step with the Spirit. (laughs) Because that's who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. And God in His wisdom made it happen on that day. Does that make sense? So, so when you go, well, wait, the, Holy, the baptism of the Spirit comes after belief. Well, it did on that day. Yeah, it did, because I believe they were believers in the upper room. And you're right, it happened on a later day, but there was a reason. And that reason's not repeated anymore in history. Is everybody with me on that? So now the second time the baptism comes after belief is Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, Philip, after the persecution of Saul, has gone into Samaria. Jews hate Samaritans. And the struggle of the early church was that the Jews thought it was just for them. You know, this is simplifying, oh, maybe an oversimplification, but not much. And so they had trouble letting others in, even though it was, you know, the Abrahamic promise was to be a blessing to all nations. And you see this in the book of Acts. They have trouble letting the Gentiles in. You know, some of the Jews go, okay, well, we'll let them in, but they need to keep this part of the law. You know, they weren't willing to go, no, it's all of grace. It's all of grace for Jew, Gentile, for everyone. And so Philip goes, some Samaritans come to faith. And the, the uh, apostles who are in Jerusalem, they hear of it and send Peter and John. Peter and John go to Samaria And as Peter and John are talking to them about the gospel, yes, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak in tongues. So it's, it's, you know, now now you go, well, so it happened afterwards there. Well, let me tell you why, why a reason I believe that it happened afterwards. Because God in his sovereignty, this is the very beginning, he knows they're gonna struggle with, quote, outsiders being in the faith now, so to speak. And so God sends two apostles who are leading the church and puts them right there so that they see it, they hear it, and it's undeniable. And and Philip even says it. The Holy Spirit fell on them just like he fell on us. I, I guess they're in just like we are. Are you with me on that? And so you understand it's like Arab Israel right now. They, they just hate each other. And so God says, I'm gonna show you that the Samaritans are in, just like you and everyone else, all is of grace. So there's two, re- two times it happened afterwards. I think there's reason for that. The third one is Acts chapter 19. And Paul's on his third missionary journey. And he goes along and finds about 12 guys who think they're Christians. 
And Paul says, well, you know, what, how are you, who are you baptizing? And they say, well, we were baptized in the baptism of John. So these, these men are saying, you know, back when John the Baptist was baptizing a baptism of repentance, John himself said, look, this, uh, someone's going to come who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's going to be Jesus. They said, well, we were baptized in John's baptism. And Paul says, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Do you remember what they said? Any, anybody? Remember, it's okay, but never even heard of the guy. <laughs> Who's the Holy Spirit? You know, so, so I would suggest that they weren't regenerate. They weren't born again in that moment. Now, Paul preaches to them and bam, you know, the spirit falls upon them. But I don't even believe they were Christians. So I would take those three occasions and go, you know, there's reasons the spirit came later on those three occasions. But that's not prescribed, nor is it the norm that we see in the New Testament letters. I'm going to tell you, as I go through this, I have thought a lot about it, and I want to be sensitive to those of you from a charismatic Pentecostal background. I'm not going to back away from it, but I'm also going to say I want to be generous and gracious as, I, as I'll disagree in some areas. And there's some places I'm going to be dogmatic, and there's other places I'm not going to be dogmatic because I don't really know. But I hope if I do any, when I say or do anything related to a Pentecostal or a charismatic background, please know I'm only doing it to teach and I'm doing it because I'm responsible to this body, Rob and I are, to what we teach. And this, you know, Pentecostal charismatics believe that the Holy Spirit comes later and it's often evidenced by tongues. We don't believe that. So what about the tongues, Lloyd? Well, let me quickly, you know, say this related to tongues. It is beyond a shadow of doubt. Pentecostal charismatic, whatever, anyone when they look at the book of Acts, and we look at Acts chapter 2, the tongues, glossolalia, that, was, that were spoken in, in that setting uh, were languages. I mean, they were foreign languages. It was not just syllables or something. It was not a heavenly language. It was, it was a foreign language. So that when the Spirit came upon them in the room and they started speaking, it's absolutely clear they were speaking languages of, of people who were visiting Jerusalem from other nations. And they said, they're speaking in our language, you know? And some say, well, the, the miracle was the hearing, not the speaking. I go, ah, this is crazy, you know? This, no, they spoke in these languages and they didn't learn them. It would be like me speaking Russian. Like if I began to speak Russian right now, that's what was happening in Acts chapter 2. Y'all, I used to be terrified of uh, teaching, and I would always think someone's going to stand up right while I'm teaching and speak in tongues. Oh my gosh, it's going to scare me, you know, or I'm gonna, not going to know what to do. And, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really not afraid of that now in the sense of if someone's spoken a tongue right now, what would be my first question? Can anyone interpret it? And that means someone in the room knows Russian or knows whatever language they spoke in. It's not going to be a space language. It's going to be a language. And then we would move on. We'd, we'd, if it edifies the body, if it doesn't, then we'd say, you know, that's inappropriate because the church is to be orderly. So it was, it was, there were languages. Now, some of you will go to 1 Corinthians 14, and Paul speaks there where he says, I, I speak and my mind's not engaged and, and, um, and, and I don't even know, I don't know what I'm saying, etc. He says it's a, a heavenly language. I believe, Rob, we believe that if, if you were to take 1 Corinthians 14 and, and, and interpret it how we would interpret it, there's reason to believe that, that that's, not a, that's not as what some people call a prayer language. It's, 
It's the same thing. Tongues is the same thing there as it is in Acts chapter 2. That's what we would believe. Now, now many people disagree with that, okay? But that's what we believe, that that's the same thing. When the baptism of the Spirit fell on people or when people came to faith in Christ in the book of Acts, they didn't all speak in tongues. See, see, it's not universal. You can't go through the book of Acts and say every time it happens, someone spoke in tongues. That's not true. That's simply not biblical. Uh, We believe that your Holy Spirit baptizes you at the moment you believe that tongues is not an evidence of Spirit's baptism. It's not an evidence that you're more spiritual or have a deeper spiritual life than others. Uh, I, I want to recognize this, and this is where I'm, I want to be, you know, you know me, I'm going to be as practical as I can, that um, some of you have spoken in tongues. I, I believe that. Uh, some, of you, um, some of you have a prayer language probably, and you maybe not talk about it or whatever, but you have a certain a language you speak uh, between you and God based on 1 Corinthians and your understanding of that. I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. I don't believe that's what that is, but I'm not going to be dogmatic. I want you to know personally, I've never spoken in tongues um, publicly or privately, um, as we're charged to guard the doctrines of the church, we're not going to teach that tongues is something that gives evidence of a maturity in Christ. Um, I, you know, and again, I'm not doing this to be funny, but just because I've all, you know, sometimes I had this curiosity, but I have been places where people spoke in tongues, as many of you have. And now when I do this, I want you to know I'm not making fun of anything, but I will tell you that when I've heard someone speak in a tongue, it sounded a lot like this, okay? And I'm not trying to be silly. I'm just telling you, that's what it sounded like to me. It just sounded like syllables kind of coming off and rolling off their tongue. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing. And, you know, psychologically, um, you know, when that's something like that, that does kind of give you like a whoa, you know, whatever, but... but Honestly, that can, be, that can be psychologically induced. I mean, it can be something you just do. If you are ever with someone that says, have you been baptized with spirit? And you say, well, yeah. But they go, no, well, you've ever spoken in tongues? You say, no. And they say, well, you need to speak in tongues. And this, is, this happens, and that maybe happens to some of you. And they may say, well, you need to speak in tongues, and here's how, here's how you do it. And, and, and they, some would say, you know, close your eyes, relax, pray to speak in tongues. Now open your mouth and start making sounds. Ba, la, ba, da, ba. I'm serious. I'm not making fun of that. But that's how many charismatic Pentecostal will do. And I just want you to know, if you ever find yourself in that place, I do not believe that is biblical at all. Now, could something happen and you feel closer to God? Yeah, I, I get that. But that's not biblical. That's not what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Certainly not when we look at the epistles, and it's very clear what being filled with the Spirit produces. So with that, I hope you hear me being, I hope, gracious uh, to others who believe differently. I won't be super dogmatic on that. I agree with Lehman Strauss. He warns us, and and I think this is appropriate. He says, first, speaking in tongues can be self-induced. It can be. Second, speaking in tongues can be group-induced. It can be in a setting, in a group, something's happening in that group, and it you know, you can induce yourself to do that. And third, speaking in tongues can be satanically induced. And I don't say that to scare anybody. I just go, that's, you have to be very, very careful. If you've never spoken in tongues, you're in good company in the sense of we never have a record that Jesus spoke in tongues. 
after this Pentecost, we don't have any record that any of the apostles spoke in, I mean, we don't have a record of them saying, I spoke, you know. Paul later will say he did, but we don't have a record of the rest of them. Well, I'm out of time after one question. Not, I'm not quite out of time. I've got some others, but you may go, well, you took the whole time to answer that question. I go, well, I did on purpose because if we miss it there, then we just, I'm just telling you, then we, have, then we slide off on this way or we slide off on this way. And so it's so important to start right there. What is the baptism of the Spirit? When does it happen and what does it mean? And what's this thing about tongues? And if we stay in, I think on the, stay in that, then we don't move off so quickly into era. But I am quickly going to hit a few others, okay? Because this is my last chance to cover these. Uh, parts of it I'll cover on, on, online, okay? Some of you ask, is it appropriate to pray to the Holy Spirit. Sure. <laughs> but. Yes, but. Think about it. The Holy Spirit's God. Is it appropriate to pray to the Holy Spirit who's God? Yes. Is it appropriate? To, how many of you pray to Jesus? Seriously. I do. I pray to, I talk to Jesus because Jesus is God. And, and how many pray to the Father? You know, we pray to the Father. Yes, so is it appropriate? Is it okay to pray to the Spirit? Yes, it's fine to pray to the Spirit. You have a relationship with the Spirit. The Spirit lives in you and you can speak with the Spirit, you know. Um, so there's a yes there, but there's a but. And the, and the but is only this. When we, when we take our New Testament and we see, in fact, how Jesus instructed us to pray, when Jesus said, when they said, teach us to pray, we know that Jesus started with our, well, who? Our Father. And, and when we take the New Testament and we look at the prayers, what we understand is the, the model of prayer uh, is really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's always a model of redemption and the work of redemption, such that we, we pray to God our Father, okay? And we're able to pray to God our Father because he sent his son Jesus to live to die and be resurrected such that we could have that relationship with the Father. And we're able to do it because the Holy Spirit lives in us and empowers us to pray those prayers. And so it's, it's, it's primarily, not, not always, okay, but it, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit. This is, the, this is where the weight of the New Testament puts our praying and so if, 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 I, if you said to me, you know, my prayer is mostly to the Spirit, I would say, I think, that's, I think it's out of balance with what we see in the Scripture. Or you say, my, most of my prayers to Jesus. I'd go, even that's somewhat out of balance, so to speak. Not wrong morally. Okay, don't go there. But the, but the weight of the New Testament tells us we pray to God our Father in the name of the Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is always putting the glory on who? Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the story. And the Father himself puts the spotlight on Jesus. And so when we pray, let our prayers be reflected in how God accomplished redemption. That God the Father sent the Son. The Spirit enables us to, to, to be saved and to apply what Jesus did to our lives. That, does that make sense? Okay, so you can pray to the Holy Spirit. But is the Holy Spirit male or female? Oh my gosh. I'm telling you, this is one of those where I started studying, and uh, it's not as simple an answer as no, yes. And, uh, you know, I'm studying, I'm looking at all my books, I'm researching my software and whatnot and, and, and online, and this is one of those where you know how you can start off going online to buy a pair of socks? 
And about three hours later, you're looking at glass bottom huts in Tahiti. How does that happen? Like, why did I get over here? You know, because you're just going. And uh, is the Holy Spirit male or female? Well, let's start here. Okay, there's an answer. The Holy Spirit's God, right? God is spirit. Don't miss this. God is spirit. Spirit has no gender. And so male and female are gender words. They don't apply to God, quite frankly. Are you with me on this? Why? Why don't they apply to God? He's spirit. He's spirit, y'all. He doesn't have, you know, I'm gonna be frank on this. He doesn't have arms and genitalia and eyes. God is spirit, people. He's spirit. So gender doesn't, it's almost like, well, that, that question doesn't apply, doesn't make sense. But, but, don't forget Genesis 1 says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. What do we do with that? Because we're, there's male and female that reflects the image of God. Well, here's, here's what we do with this. God chose, chooses to reveal himself to say, my nature and all that I am, watch this, is both male and female. So he didn't say, we're going to make, I'm going to show the world my image and he just made female and he just made male. No. He made male and female. Now, now the mystery, you know, hold the mystery in this, that, that, that God is reflect, his image is reflected in some way in both male and female. And yet, God himself transcends male and female. He's beyond male and female. And, and you go, well, now you're not making sense, or now you're making my brain hurt. Well, welcome to theology, you know, and God. We can't understand perfectly everything, but we take what he reveals. And he reveals himself and says, I'm going to make man in our image. And therefore, his image is, some, is somehow mysteriously male and female. And yet he transcends male and female because he's spirit. Okay? Now, why have I, every time I've referred to God, used a masculine pronoun? Huh? Yeah, and where do we get the name Father from? Yeah, and, and in a book called the Bible, he is never referred to as she. The Spirit is never referred to as she. So you go, well, if you're a woman, this is, you know, this is where we get kind of out of whack. I want to say to you, this is no diminishing of femininity, but God has chosen to reveal himself and communicate himself in the masculine, okay? So God's a male. What did I just say? He's spirit. He transcends male and femaleness, but he's chosen to communicate to us of himself in masculine terms, and therefore, we dare not go away from that. Now, what's interesting is God describes himself in some female ways. Almost 30 times there's these descriptions. Think about it. God says he births the nation of Israel. Oh, that sounds very female. 
God says that he, he, he puts the nation under a wing like a hen, not a rooster, a hen. And so is there feminine, he, clearly God wants to communicate there's this feminine sense of care and whatever, you know, those things. He, he's communicating that feminine nature in a sense, but he is described always in male terms, not in she terms. And therefore, that's how we address our God and how we relate to him. Okay, we'll go off of that one. Are all the spiritual gifts operating today? Okay, let's start here. Uh, What are spiritual gifts? Um, Oh, well, let me say this about the male and female because I think this is important. John 16. When, when, when uh, John writes and says the Spirit's going to come and guide you into all truth, the word spirit is neuter, neither male nor female. It's neuter. And, and Greek grammar says if it's, if it's a neuter subject, then the pronoun that's describing it will be neuter. And yet in that passage, he says the spirit, neuter, will guide you into all things. He, masculine. So John breaks grammatical rules to say the spirit is a he. Do you see that? See that? So that's where you go, God has revealed himself as a, as a man. Now, um, okay, are all the gifts operating today? A spiritual gift is a, is a divine enablement. It's given by God to every Christian that enables you to serve and build up the body of Christ. If you're a Christian in this room today, then you have a spiritual gift Okay, the, now the gift of the Spirit is, is that the Spirit's gifted to us, but a spiritual gift is a divine enablement. You, you, you have a, and it's usually kind of along your wiring or whatnot, but it's truly divine that God says, now you're gonna use this to serve and build up the body. There are three lists of these uh, gifts, so to speak. We understand that when you put the three lists together, they overlap, some don't have others. Have, and it tells us the list isn't complete. It's not complete. There are probably other spiritual gifts that weren't listed, but the ones that are listed, uh, there are at least 19, 20. Some have more than that. So everyone has a gift. Now, when you say are all the gifts operating today, you know, the ones that, that people struggle with, it doesn't surprise you, would be probably, because it says there's a gift of healing and there's a gifts of miracles. And so you go, well, are those operating today? Because they sure were in the, in the New Testament. And what you have is you have two camp, so to speak, as, you know, everything's got these guys and these guys, you know, so to speak. So you have cessationists who would say that the, that some of the gifts aren't functioning today, okay, because we now have the completed scripture and we don't need, et cetera, et cetera. And then on this side, you would have the continuationist. What do you think the continuationists believe? That all the gifts continue. I don't want to put either one a straw man on either one because sometimes I'll just pick this one. Sometimes people say, if you're a cessationist, then you don't believe in miracles. No cessationist would say, I don't believe in miracles. Of course, the cessationist would say that, that I don't believe that that gift is functioning today, but God does miracles. And so let me say to you, what do we believe? Well, I'll say this. We believe absolutely God does miracles today. 
And not just in third world countries. I just want you to know he does miracles. That means he, he breaks into the physical realm and does things that break physical laws, whatever, however he wants to do it. He's God. He absolutely does that and can do that. Does God heal miraculously today? Well, I'd call that a miracle. Yes, he heals. Is it appropriate for us to pray that God would do a miracle and the cancer would be removed? That the eyes would be open and the blindness would be... Yes, it's appropriate to pray those things. And God in his sovereignty does those things. It's, 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 it's up to him, you know, to do that. And what, what we would say is while God does that, um, it's, it's not normative today. And, and I would say this, I, I'm not sure where Rob would be. I think he'd be close to me on this in the sense of, I, I don't believe that the gift like the gift, if, it, if the gift is residing, in a, the gift of miracles resides in a person and that, that person having that gift can touch people like they did here. I, I don't think, because I'm not gonna be dogmatic. I don't think that functions today, but it could. I don't think it does. Well, Lord, are you a cessationist? Or are you a continuationist? Yeah, you know, that's, that's what I'd tell you. And I, and I would hope you would be balanced in, in that uh, yourself. So, think about redemptive history, even related to this, y'all. You know, redemptive history goes like this. Miracles, miracles. Mm, life, 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 thousand, hundred years, life, life, life. Miracles, miracles. Mm, just life, 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 life. Miracles, miracles. I'm telling you, when you read your Bible, it's not like miracles, 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 miracles. It's not that. So why is it that it primarily we see this spike in three places? You know, when you look at redemptive history, you understand that in the days of Moses, okay, Moses and Aaron, God is clearly birthing a nation. He's affirming their leadership, all the miracles coming out of Egypt. You know, God's validating that. In the time of Elisha and Elijah, there's a lot of miracles in there, uh, affirming his message through the prophets. And then it just kind of dies down. And then you get to the New Testament, and you take the New Testament, where, where are the miracles in the New Testament? Jesus and the apostles. And you get into the letters and you don't see that nearly as much. You, know, you get into the letters and Paul's telling, uh, you know, Timothy, drink some wine, man. He didn't say, go to the healer. He said, drink some wine for your stomach. It'll help it. I think it's true, you know. So you, 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 you see these miracles and they seem to be when God's validating his messengers, doesn't diminish them at all, but it helps us understand this is where they, they seem to occur. Does that make sense? I think, that's, I think that's reasonable. So last thing, how do we know when we're being led by the Spirit? Some of you asked this. It's a great question to end on. How do I know the Spirit is leading? How do you know it's not dinner last night? How do you know it's just not a bad dream? How do you know? Really, how do you know? I will tell you this, and, and, and you know, quote me in context, please. I do believe God still speaks today. I do. I believe he speaks. And you go, well, Lord, oh, you're, you're treading on the slippery slope now. I'm not saying that God speaks and therefore I need to write it down and we need to put it in the Bible. I'm not, no, I'm not saying that. I think the scripture is complete. God has spoken and he's spoken all he needs for us for life and truth and faith. I believe he has spoken. Well, what do you mean God speaks? Well, I'm in a relationship with God and you are too if you know Jesus. And you're in a relationship with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus. And a relationship means communication. Now, some of you may say, well, yeah, and that communication is all right here. So it just got to be right here. Well, I, you know, this is not how we see the, 
church being led and the spirit leading people, and, you, and, and, and I want to get as practical as I can, so I'm trying to do this. And so you say, well, Lord, how does God speak to you? I can't tell you that, uh, you know, God, God told me to do this and I heard his voice or whatever. But I will tell you when I'm praying about things, um, I have thoughts and I have a sense of this is, I think this is the direction to go. Can I tell you a lot of times it happens to me when I'm praying as I drive into work and I'm usually driving in in the dark, it's early in the morning. And uh, if I'm working on a message, I, I don't know, you know, I'm just gonna tell you how this, you know, it's like I'm driving in and, and I'm thinking about what to say or whatever and it's like, the thought comes to my head. And it's like, you can say it this way. And I will out loud go, God, thank you for that. Because I believe that was God. I believe that was the Holy Spirit. You know, guide me on how to sort through something or explain something. Um, do I buy this car or something? You know, certainly you can pray about that and you weigh it out, et cetera. And you, you sense and some, you, you, I hope I'm not weirding you out, but I'm telling you, if you will make yourself so familiar with his word, if you will make yourself fluent in, in Bible, in what he said, because this is all what he said, then when the spirit puts, impresses you and, and gives you direction, you'll recognize the voice. You'll, you'll know. And I'm gonna tell you something, it'll still take faith. It'll still take faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. But you'll know that's the voice of God directing me in this direction. I'm telling you, this is a relationship, y'all, and this is how he leads us, and we can trust him to speak as long as, now here's what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna give you four guardrails, okay? So I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put four guardrails right here down this aisle, okay, right here. It's kind of like the bowling alley. Your gutter, ball's not gonna go in the gutter, you know, if you got the rails up. So four things, if you would keep these in mind. Number one, is the decision and the direction in line with scripture? Can we all agree with that? If, if, is, you know, if you're kind of thinking about it, you know, I believe God wants me to have this affair. That's ridiculous. I'm, I'm serious. Or I think God wants me to lie. Uh, he wants me to lie about this. You're off the reservation, you know. It's got to be in line with Scripture. Number one. Number two is the decision and direction affirmed by your community. What? Yeah. Wait, are you telling me that I, I have to bounce this off of other people? Uh, yeah, yeah, because you're in a body. And what the, what the hand does affects the rest of my body. And you're in a body. And therefore, you need to have a community around you that affirms this direction. That's life in Christ. Third, does it glorify God? I mean, that'll put an end to a lot, you know, or change your direction. Does it, does it reveal God's character? This, this decision, this choice, whatever it may be. And then fourth, does the, does the decision, does the direction, is it motivated by, does it express the fruit of the Spirit? So you have the gift of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a gift, a charisma, charismata, the gift of the Spirit that the Spirit indwells us. You have gifts of the Spirit, it's literal spiritual endowments, skills, gifting that enable you to serve and build up the body. And then you have the fruit of the Spirit. We're not agrarian community, but everyone knows that the orange tree, if it just stays in the ground and is an orange tree, it produces oranges. It's, it, it, it flows through and produces oranges. If you're a Christian, you're abiding in Jesus, you are 
filled with the Spirit, you're dependent upon the Spirit, then what will, what must come out of you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And if it's not that, then you are in the gutter. (laughs) You're off the reservation. That's not the spirit leading you if whatever you're being led to do is not reflected by those. Everybody clear on that? So if those four things are true, okay, as best you can, not perfect, but you know what I'm saying? Lord, I'm seeking you. Then I say, you just go for it, man. Like you're living on the Autobahn. You just, I'm doing it, you know? Don't, don't be timid about it. Go for it. And guess what? If it's off, God's gonna correct you and put you back on the right path, you see? Tremendous freedom. Just, let's, let's relax in the, in the spirit and trust him with these things. Okay, man, I've gone over. No one asked this question, but we're gonna end this way. I'm gonna ask you to stand up. Um. I've thought about what would, be, what would be a mark of the Spirit, as we've gone through our series, of a Spirit-filled church. Now, it would be all the things I've just said, of course, but I've thought, what would be the mark? And I don't know that there is a the mark, but I do believe there is a mark that if it's not there, then it, we're not Spirit-dependent people. Prayer. Is there anything that... that that reflects a dependence on God more than prayer. We would be a praying people filled with the Spirit. And so I just want to pray over you this morning. And again, I'll say that, um, you know, I'm going to put my notes, I'm going to add to these notes because there's other questions I didn't get to that will, uh, will be online for you. But I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and let me pray for us. Oh God, we are so grateful for your word. Yes, you have spoken it's all we need. I thank you that you still speak. Your spirit who lives in us gives us thoughts, plants desires, gives us longings, brings clarity, shapes our mind and choices. God, would you grant us as a church individually and corporately that we would be a people who are so familiar with your written word and so overcome and in love and familiar with the incarnate word, Jesus, and so dependent on the Spirit who inspired this word, that we would hear your voice, we would sense your leading, and we would trust you in all things. Come, O creator, spirit blessed, and in our hearts take up thy rest. Spirit of grace with heavenly aid, come to the souls whom thou hast made. Thou art the comforter, we cry, sent to the earth from God most high. Fountain of life and fire of love and our anointing from above. Make our dull minds with rapture glow. Let human hearts with love overflow. And when our feeble flesh would fail, may thine immortal strength prevail. Show us the Father, Holy One. Help us to know the Eternal Son. 
Spirit divine forevermore. Thee will we trust and thee adore. Amen. If you would like someone to pray with you, we always have a a, a team to pray with you. And I mean this. Come up and let us pray with you today before you leave. God bless. Thank you for your patience.